future past. A couple of phrases may help us as we introduce. Here's one. Everything changes. Would you say everything changes? Everything changes. One person said the only absolute constant we have in human life is change. Sooner or later, everything is going to change. Thinking about things that change, it reminded me of my grandmother's generation. And uh, Mike was up here with a great illustration about how far back we can remember. And I think I went one past my grandmother, and then I lost them all. I couldn't remember. Uh, my grandmother uh, was born in the year 1899. Uh, her father was a pioneer homesteader in Wisconsin. And in my grandmother's lifetime, she lived to be close to 100. And in her lifetime, she saw a lot of changes. I want you to think with me for a little bit of the year 1899 to the year 1990. And think of the kind of changes someone in my grandma's generation would have seen. First of all, we have a picture. It is not the picture of her family's homestead, but it looks so similar when I looked it up, I thought I would show it to you. This is a, a picture of a log cabin homestead here in Wisconsin. And I don't know how many times I drove by uh, on Highway S in Wood County, Wisconsin, the old Hazel Stone homestead, and there was an old remains of a cabin just like this. Well, this was the home that my father built when he, you know, settled the land and harvested the trees and built a cabin and pulled the stumps out and all of that and made a farm. And that was, that was my grandma's life where she began in the year early 1900s. Everything changes. I want you to think about transportation. And when my grandma was young, she talked about all kinds of stories, but they all had similarities. They all had horses in them. Uh, if, if you wanted to go somewhere, you had a horse with a buggy, as she called it. If you wanted to work on the farm, you had a team of horses pulling equipment. And uh, that was it. There was horses or there was walking. And those were your options. If you lived near the sea, of course, you could take a boat, but it had to be wind-powered. So transportation was very different from her childhood to when she grew old. She lived to see people land on the moon. So just imagine the curve from horses to astronauts walking on a moon that could travel with rockets. Communication changed. There were no telephones. There were people talking. And if you wanted to talk to somebody, you sent a letter, which took a reasonable amount of time to get somewhere, or you went to them in person. Of course, she lived to see television and radio, not some of the things that we have today, uh, but uh, she lived to see a massive amount of change. And then in terms of the world that she lived, 1899, 1900, my grandma had the, the privilege or the burden of living through two world wars, plus some others, the Korean War, Vietnam War. Uh, she saw all of the world so many different times fighting and at odds with each other to the point where what's it going to look like when it's all over? That was a, quite a change. So I would say everything changes and, and you and I are living in a day when the change is almost more fast paced than that. It's just every few months a new piece of technology comes out and, and we're living in the sci-fi world except it's not fiction anymore it's reality it's you know we're it, anyway I don't want to give away my age but I remember watching things when people used to talk to computers and it was like oh wow that's cool well now we all talk to computers all the time so 
everything changes. That's one phrase. There's another one. Some things never change. Can you think of some things that never change? We're talking about future past. Some things that never change, although they modify slightly, the laws of physics don't really ever change. You know, I wasn't back, I wasn't alive in the early 1900s, but I'm pretty sure the sun came up in the morning and went down in the evening at about the same time it does today. I'm really sure that gravity worked back then the same way it does today. Uh, and you could just go through a list of all the laws of physics. There were summers that were hot in Wisconsin and winters that were cold. That happened then just like it does today. Some things never change. Laws of physics. How about the need for people to be loved? That doesn't change. Whether they're waiting for a letter, as my mother did when she was engaged, or my father was in World War II and sent her an engagement ring from overseas in, as, as he was in, in the war, and she waited for that letter to communicate that somebody was there who loved her and wanted to marry her. Whether it's that, or you have a virtual conversation you know, on, on, on your phone and telling someone you love them. The means might change, but the need for people to be loved never changes. That doesn't, we can't outgrow that, and that's going to always be there. Deeply ingrained expectations are hard to change, are hard to change. Uh, my wife will, uh, will tease me about this and my whole family, but, uh, you know, we, we had a certain tradition growing up, and it is kind of hard to change. And I'm okay with change, but it was a little hard for me being raised up on a, a dairy farm. My schedule going to school, I rode the same bus route for 12 years in a row, same school 12 years in a row, and 12 years in a row, every day I got off the bus at the same time, about 4.15 or 4.20. I got off the bus at 4.30, my mother had a delicious Supper ready. We called it supper, dinner today. But uh, So we had dinner at 4.30 every day. At 5.30, we changed clothes and we went out and milked the cows every day. How many of you were farmers and know how the everyday thing works? A couple of you. My kids will say, well, Dad, what happened on Christmas? You must have changed the schedule. I said, on Christmas, we milked cows and sang Christmas songs. That's if you really want it. Well, what happened on your birthday? On your birthday, you went to the barn and you did the chores. What happens if you were sick? You had two choices. You go to the barn or you go to the hospital, but you're not staying in the house. If you're not sick enough to be in the hospital, then they're expected to go to the barn and do the work. So I grew up, 4.30 was dinner time, no exceptions. That just was it. So guess what? I haven't been on the farm for 40 years, 40 years. But about 4.20, my stomach starts growling to this day. And I'm saying, honey, what are we going to have for supper? She says, supper, it's 4.30, 4 in the afternoon. I said, well, it's supper time. I'm hungry. I'm going to starve to dinner. And my kids will look, dad, it's not dinner time. I said, well, what time do you eat dinner? Well, about 7, 7.30. I said, that's a midnight snack by then. You know, come on. Well, my wife's thing is you can take the boy off the farm, you can't take the farm out of the boy. I mean, you're just going to always have to eat at 4.30. So that's kind of funny, but we all have things that we don't change very well. You know, we just kind of get ingrained and all of that. Today, I want us to think about one more thing that never changes, and of course it's not a thing, it's a person. God never changes. Would you say that together with me? God never changes. Maybe our theme scripture for the whole of this month could be this. It's Hebrews chapter number 13 and verse number 8. Very simple. It said, Jesus Christ 
is the same yesterday and today and forever. He never changes. He's alive from the dead and he doesn't change. God doesn't have good days or bad days. God doesn't adapt to human culture or need. God doesn't learn from experience like, hey, I tried that a couple generations ago and boy, that didn't work. I'm never going to do it. No, he doesn't learn. He is constant. He is eternal. He lives and exists above the realm of time and supersedes time. Past, present, future is all one to him. He is God and he never changes. So, the question, how does God, who never changes, who's always constant, how does God relate to a world of people that change so quickly that we can hardly keep up? You know, Mike, in, when he shared about the offering, did a great job. But, and he talked about a normal generation is 30 years, which has always been true, 30 to 40 the latest research shows that cultural change is happening so fast that about every seven years, a whole new group of culture generation people is established. About every seven years, there's a whole new group that has a whole different idea about things. Whatever the years are, how do we find the unchanging God and his will in a world that's so different, we hardly recognize it from the one just a few years ago? Do, does God adapt? Does he change? Should, are there eternal things? How, how will we answer those questions? This series is designed to bring those answers. Because what we're going to look at is not just find a scripture that's going to give an answer. We're going to look at God didn't answer that question by giving us instructions. He answered that question by giving us a person. I want you to think about that. God, how do we know what your will is? How should we interpret the complicated, changing, sometimes crazy cultural adaptations of our world? And how do we relate that to you? He doesn't say, go to the front of your Bible, find the table of contents, and read the page that says God's will for today, and you'll know it. It's not in there. God didn't answer that question by giving us instructions. He answered that question by giving us a person. That person was Jesus. And Jesus, by God's design, I believe, dealt with humanity in many different ways and in many different circumstances so powerfully, so profoundly, that when we look at him and how he lived and what he did, we can see what God would do today in our world. And that's going to be the whole thing. Now, you and I like instructions, and there are, there are denominations of churches that do this more than we do, and, and there are people that want it this way. But what we would really like sometimes, I think, is we would like, okay, so you're, you're a theologian, you're the pastor, you should figure this out, you go to God, you figure out what he wants, and you come back with a list of what we should do and what we shouldn't do, and we'll just do that and we'll be good. Now, there are people that do that, but what happens is, Culture changes and then those rules don't make any sense anymore. And then we look at the church and it looks like, well, this, this is archaic. It's not relating. It's kind of like this. Uh, just this last week, I have a, uh, my wife wanted to 
change up. We have a home office. It's just a little room. And she had a, a desk there. It was a bigger, older, big oak desk, heavy thing. It takes two people to move it around. Hard to get out. Well, she, it was older fashioned. She wanted to modernize it up. So sold that desk, bought some new furniture, modernized it up. Well, the old desk was, you know, solid, oak, handmade, whatever it was, big, big clunker of a thing. Uh, but the new desk, which looks really cool and modern, being a little sarcastic here, but I don't, I don't, she's not here, so I'm all right. Um, really cool and modern desk. The new desk came in boxes, and then it had a little file cabinet that it came in a box, and it had a shelf that came in a box, and I knew what I was in for. I saw those boxes, and I thought, well, you know, it can't be that bad. It's just not that big of a box. And I cut the side open in timber, 25 little pieces of particle board with stuff on top of it come rolling out, along with a giant book of Chinese instructions. <laughs> they weren't just in Chinese. They are in multiple languages. Four and, a, four and a half hours later, yours truly succeeded in assembling the new office furniture. Four and a half hours. No, that's, <laughs> well, you can clap, but I wasn't clapping at the end of that four and a half hours. Now, 10 years ago, it would have been eight hours because I wouldn't have followed the instructions. It's learned the hard way, folks. I mean, you know, I was just like, oh, I don't need to follow those. What do you mean take the screw out of the package? I know what a package is. You have to tell me that. And, you know, and I'd do my own thing, and it'd be all wrong, and I'd have to go back and read. So I just followed them slowly patiently wiping the sweat of frustration off my brow, and I finished the whole thing. That's what people want from God. Take out your Bible at 8 a.m. and read this scripture today. Number two, when you get ready to go to work, make sure you have a good attitude. Number three, at 8.30 while you're driving, sing this worship song. At 9 o'clock when you go into the office, pray before. You see where I'm going with this? We want that because, oh, that would make it so easy. But our, our, our human nature doesn't like it. So we want it, but we don't want it. And it doesn't work because everything changes around us. God doesn't speak to us by instructions. He speaks to us by a person. And we're going to look at that person through this series and find out what he has to say. For today, would you read with me the Gospel of John, which is where we're going to be for the next minutes. We're going to read in chapter 1. And verse 10, this outlines the mission of Jesus for us in his world, then the past as well as the future. In verse 10 in chapter 1, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh or of the will of men, but of God. And the word, that's the word logos, the word of God, the, the whole story of God, all that God had to say to humanity, that word became flesh. And it dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, that's Jesus, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Today we're going to read a story in just a moment that illustrates grace and truth. It illustrates God, timeless God, unchanging God, loving God, powerful God, holy God, coming to the mess of humanity, coming right into the middle of the same kind of confusion 
that we have today. What does he do? The Bible here tells us that he brings grace and truth. We're going to see that illustrated in this story. And I really believe as we read it in this story in the Gospel of John, we'll find ourselves in one way or one form or another. Let me give you the quick setting. The story is found in John chapter 8. If you went to John chapter 7, the story begins where Jesus goes to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was a, a commemoration of the time that they lived in tents in the wilderness. So all the people of Israel were supposed to go to Jerusalem and they would there put up a booth or a tent and symbolize their wilderness experience. Anyway, it was a big deal and Jesus was preparing to go to the feast. However, it seemed he was hesitant to go and for good reason. Because there in Jerusalem were the scribes, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who by this time were extremely jealous of Jesus. He had done so many miracles and his popularity had grown to such a level that they decided if he shows up, we're going to arrest him and have him killed. Well, his own family said, you got to go to Jerusalem and, and he acted like he wouldn't. But then he went kind of discreetly. And he's there in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles and the scribes and Pharisees saw their moment and they sent soldiers saying, arrest him and bring him back. Long story short, the soldiers went to Jesus. And while he, they're there, they listen to him. And he's full of grace and truth. He wasn't like the religious leaders they were used to. There was no jealousy. There was no pretension. There was no hypocrisy. There was no discarding of people in order to justify your own righteousness. There was truth and there was grace. And the soldiers came back to the people that had sent them and they said, where is he? Why didn't you bring him? Their answer was, no man has ever spoken like this man. They were dazzled. They couldn't arrest him. So plan A failed. And Jesus is there in Jerusalem. Chapter 8 was their plan B. They're going to get him another way. Let's read from verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Pause quickly to remind you that this was a plan to trap Jesus. This was not a real desire to purify the land of adultery or lust. This was not uh, a desire to get rid of this woman. This was a trap that they had set for Jesus. They went on. Now in the law, they said, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see, they knew Jesus wasn't about discarding human beings and killing people who had sinned. He came and said over and over, I've come to save people, to deliver people, to give them a new life, not to destroy them because their old life wasn't right. They knew that, but they also knew that Jesus knew the word of God. And they knew that if they could get him to violate the scripture, they could discredit him and it would be better than if they had him killed. So they were waiting for him to decide. So what do you say? They said this to test him. Jesus bent down 
and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, I want you to picture this. He's not answering. What are you going to say? What do you have to say to this? What's your answer? What should we do with her? And they're shouting. He stood up and said to them, quote, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, end of quote. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up, said to her, only one left, woman, where are they? Has no one accused you? One translation says, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. I believe this story illustrates God, timeless God, to messed up changing people better than almost every other. You know, we, we, get, we get what we want out of Bible stories, but today I'm going to ask you to expand your view of this story just a little bit, rather than just think, boy, isn't Jesus cool? He forgives people. He's a nice guy. Well, yes, but that's not all that this story has to illustrate. Let's look a little bit at the players in this story quickly. The scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes were literally the copy machines of their day. There weren't copy machines. So how do you think you got a copy of scripture if you wanted a copy of scripture? Someone had to copy it. Well, they didn't let just anyone copy it because have you ever played that old telephone game where you sit around a table and you whisper a phrase in somebody's ear and by the time it gets back, you know, seven or eight people later, it's a whole different phrase. Who's ever played that game? A couple of you. So you don't want playing, you don't want to play telephone with the scriptures. Here, I'll translate this. Now you copy it. Now you copy it. Now you copy it. Well, by the time it got, it might become the scribes were meticulous. They they had rules that are so they're amazing, profound, detailed to a crazy point, but they were careful. And they were careful about everything. The Pharisees were the ultra-conservative party of religion of the day. They wanted to be right. They got a little twisted because they so wanted to do the right thing, it eventually became a religious pride. We do the right thing. We're better than all these other people. These were the interpreters and practitioners of religion. They knew God by words, but they were blinded by their own pride and jealousy. And they were the ones that it said he came to his own. His own did not receive him. That was who that was aimed at. He came to the, his own people. And the very people that said they were worshiping God and waiting for his Messiah said, it can't be you. They were blinded. They played the role in this story of Satan. You say, what are you talking about? Well, we think sometimes Satan is a name like there's Fred, John, James, there's Jesus, Elijah, Moses, Mary, and then Satan. Satan is not a name. Satan is a Hebrew word that's a title. And the Hebrew word Satan means accuser. Accuser. So could you see Satan in this realm? Sure. They didn't care about the woman. They didn't care about the mob. They didn't even care about their religion. They wanted to get rid of Jesus and they were willing to extinguish a life and make a terrible mess out of a whole holiday to get rid of Jesus. 
Number two, the woman. The woman, I believe, represents all of humanity at our lowest. You know, we think of this woman. She was caught in the act of adultery, obviously embarrassed and, and afraid and terrified at what was going to happen as she was dragged before the crowd. But this woman wasn't a worse sinner than anyone else in the group, with the exception of Jesus. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All means all. Everybody missed God's mark. The only difference with this woman is somebody put a microscope on it, took a picture of it, and then paraded the picture before everybody else and said, look what she did. The woman represents us all. Her sin was brought out into the open. It was not worse. It was just exposed. All of us would not want our worst moment exposed before everyone. Hers was. No doubt she was afraid. She was afraid of God. And she was definitely afraid of his people. And there are people in today's world that are afraid of God. They don't really know God. But they're afraid of his people. Because we don't always do a very good job at being Christ-like. The third group. The crowd of people. You know, in order for somebody to be stoned in Israel, uh, ancient times or Jesus' time, uh, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but they had places where this could happen. And when they brought this woman out, you know, this wasn't like in a building. This was in a place where there was a pile of stones and they had a place where they could stone this woman. But here's what had to happen. The law of Moses said, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So they couldn't just get a mob together and say, kill her, throw a stone. They couldn't do that. That's not legal. They had to have two witnesses. First witness picks up a stone with everyone watching, holds the stone before God and said, I witness before Almighty God that this woman committed an act of adultery and is worthy of death. I throw that first stone. I'm the first witness. Nobody else does a thing. Second witness picks up a stone. I witness the same thing. They throw the second stone. After that, then the mob joins. Then it's a fury. Then it's crazy. But the first two have to witness. So what does it say about the crowd? The crowd were just common people. They saw through this. This was a religious smokescreen, and they knew it. The crowd realized that, yeah, this woman sinned, but hey, we all do. What's the matter with these people? Why do they drag her out here? What kind of people are these spying on people in the night, finding this woman sinning just so they can make a point? They don't care about her. They don't care about God. They're trying to get at Jesus. They saw that. And if they didn't see that, they did realize that, do we really have to have a religion that kills people? Do I want to be held to that standard? So Jesus' word wasn't like a judgment status. Jesus' word was addressing what was in all of their hearts. If you could have, if it would have been the custom, I believe that common crowd would have said, amen. When he said, let them first two witnesses not have their own sin. I'll bet the common people went, good, we're out of here. And then the Pharisees who were counting on the, the frenzy well, they were the only ones left. They can't very well stone this person by themselves. It would make them look bad. The common people represent common people today. They realize there's God, and then there's people's interpretation of God. We don't always do a good job of it. 
Lastly was Jesus. The last character we want to talk about. Jesus was God in human form. He was not sucked up or sucked into the religious self-righteous fury. Jesus could have said, you're right. The woman should be stoned. Why do you think that was inspired? I gave Moses that word. We have to keep our nation pure. We have to do the right thing. He could have said that. He could have stood there with the woman after all the other sinful people left and said, you deserve to die. Her sin didn't surprise him. He knew. And he also knew that everyone else in the crowd and everyone else on the planet that he came to sinned just like her. So Jesus was not drawn into the religious and self-righteous fury. Jesus was unwilling to be flattered into action even when prodded by someone's favorite scripture. Well, the Bible says... Jesus refused to walk away from a difficult situation. He stayed there and he rode in the sand. Jesus did not condemn. Now, you know all these things. You're expecting this. I, I know that. But I'm almost done. Jesus did not condemn. Rather, he forgave. Everyone say he forgives. We all should be glad for that. He did not condemn, but rather he forgave. Last point. He redirected a sinful life to live the right way. That's the part we don't always hear. Go, he said. Sin no more. I have known a number of people in life that would call themselves cancer survivors. And uh, I've heard meetings. I've been at meetings with them. I prayed for them. And, and I've heard some of them where the, the cases have been quite severe will say, basically, my life was divided into two phases. The phase of my life before cancer and the phase after. I'm a survivor now, but that experience changed me forever. I think this woman had two phases of her life. I mean, do you think you could walk away from an experience like that and go, huh, boy, Jesus is nice. Well, let's see who else I can know. I think Jesus, this woman probably walked away from that experience thinking, I got a second life. I could have been under a pile of rocks with my blood soaking into the sand on a street on the outskirts of Jerusalem. I could have been dead and condemned by God. But God and his Savior saved me. Do you think she was just going to casually get up from there and go, oh, well, it's all good. I can do whatever I want. You really think so? Or do you really think she thought, I had a life before Jesus, I've got a life after Jesus. And my life after Jesus is different now. Nobody has to tell me you shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't do that. And I nearly died. And now, by his grace, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to sin no more. Jesus didn't tell people there were no standards. He said, sin no more. The word sin means missing the mark. There's a standard. You miss it. He told people, there are standards. There are standards for marriage, for sexuality, for morality, for living together or with, with humans in our world, to, to be kind and generous. There are standards to, for living, and God has them. He is, Jesus didn't come to erase them. He came recognizing that we couldn't keep them, so he would forgive us. That's grace. That's grace. But he also came with truth. Truth, the word for truth in the Bible is the reality, the real thing. 
Jesus came to look through the religious smokescreen. He came to look past the liberals who, were, who would love to make an excuse for any behavior because of Jesus. He said, it's not that way. I have a way to live and I have grace for you to live it. And when you make a mistake, I've already provided for you to be forgiven. And when you encounter me, I'm going to tell you, welcome. I don't condemn you. And I'm going to tell you, you got your life back. Don't mess it up again. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray and ask God's help. Lord Jesus, today we ask you to help us. We ask you that in this moment, you would help us. And in this month, you would speak to us. We ask your help by the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. If you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I want to welcome Jesus into my life. I want to take that step to really use my faith and put it in him to trust Jesus to be my savior. If you've not made that choice, I'm going to ask you to say yes to him by raising your hand. Would you do it right now if that describes you? You want to welcome Jesus in your life? Thank you so much. A couple of hands today. You can put your hands down. Thank you for being so willing to welcome Christ. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray a prayer all together. I'll pray it a few words at a time. Repeat it after me. If you mean it, it's not magic, but if you mean it, Jesus will come into your heart and life. Let's all pray together. Would you all join me? Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son. I believe you died on a cross to take away my sins. And I believe you rose from the dead. Lord Jesus Christ, I give you my life. I ask you to forgive and cleanse me and to make me God's child. In your name, amen.